This is your public radio station for more than 37 years, KUAF 91.3 in Fayetteville, and this is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, September 13th, 2022. I'm Timothy Dennis. I'm Matthew Moore. Nina Totenberg has been a familiar voice of NPR since its earliest days. As the network's legal affairs correspondent, she has regularly reported on the Supreme Court, its justices, and justice at large. On today's show, Ozarks at Large's Kyle Kellums talks with Nina about her new book, Dinners with Ruth, a memoir on the power of friendship, which is out today. That's later on this edition of Ozarks at Large. First today, a significant portion of tax revenue collected from medical marijuana sales in Arkansas is granted each year to the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences Cancer Institute in Little Rock. As Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, UAMS is spending the money to build facilities, research, and staff to qualify as a national cancer institute, the first of its kind in Arkansas. Dr. J. Michael Beerer serves as director of the Winthrop P. Rockefeller Cancer Institute at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences in Little Rock. I'm a medical oncologist and ovarian cancer genomics uh, researcher by training, uh, trained mostly in the New York, the Harvard system, National Cancer Institute, and then I came down here to run the Rockefeller Cancer Institute. Beerer assumed the position in late 2019. Earlier that year, the Arkansas legislature authorized pursuit by UAMS to seek National Cancer Institute designation for its Cancer Treatment and Research Institute. Act 181 established a temporary trust fund to hold and manage donations from private and public sources, including tax revenue generated on sales of medical marijuana in Arkansas. Up until that time, the Cancer Institute, the Winthrop P. Rockefeller Cancer Institute, survived primarily by philanthropic dollars, which is very difficult to sustain. Since medical cannabis was legalized in Arkansas in 2016 and the first dispensaries opened three years later, patients have spent more than $723 million on medical marijuana remedies. Nearly 90,000 Arkansans are registered as qualifying patients. Total state tax revenue as of August is $78.6 million. Under state law, 6.5% is designated regular state sales tax, along with a 4% privilege tax on sales from cultivators to dispensaries. A portion of tax revenue goes to state agencies that administer the Arkansas Medical Marijuana Program, including the Alcohol Beverage Control Board, Department of Finance and Administration, the State Medical Marijuana Commission, and the Department of Health, which registers all qualifying patients. According to DFA spokesperson Scott Harden, the remainder to date $62 million in tax revenue is granted to the UAMS National Cancer Designation Trust Fund to expand operations and seek National Cancer Institute designation. The first year, we got $19.5 million. The second year, we got $26.5. And the third year, we're around $27 million. Once I showed up in December, I took an assessment of the Cancer Institute and said, where are our needs? And our needs, first and foremost, was that we needed to extend and deepen what I call our research bench. We needed new and young investigators, top quality, great recruits, in order to get them to come to an institution, and in this case in Arkansas, I'll be perfectly honest, it's not the easiest place to recruit to, uh, you need to offer them research packages. And so our research packages range from one to two million. They extend over five years, so they've got security. And we've hired to date 21 people. So if you, if you crunch the numbers, uh, you know, that's probably about 40 to 45 million right there. Beer says the UAMS Cancer Institute has been reorganizing research and clinical trial sectors to attract medical industrial interests and to generate both revenue and jobs to meet National Cancer Institute standards. Creating community outreach engagement is another NCI obligation. Our catchment area is the entire state of Arkansas. So we need a statewide navigator program, which um, we have now set up and is functional. These are navigators which will both educate Arkansans about cancer prevention and cancer uh, screenings, 
And it will, God forbid, if they get a diagnosis of cancer, navigate them to the appropriate place to be cared for. And that may not be UAMS. It may be just a, a local hospital, which is fine. But we need to demonstrate that NCI that we are caring for cancer patients throughout the state. First established as the Arkansas Cancer Research Center in 1989, the Rockefeller Cancer Institute is a matrix cancer center embedded in specific clinical departments at UAMS, providing diagnosis and treatment for over 30 types of cancer. If designated a National Cancer Institute, UAMS Cancer Institute will be one of 72 NCI-designated cancer centers operating in 36 states funded by NCI to deliver cutting-edge cancer treatments to patients. Designated NCI centers must meet rigorous standards for transdisciplinary state-of-the-art research focused on developing new and better approaches to preventing, diagnosing, and treating cancer. And the application process is intensely complex. We're going to need input from our external advisory board, which we just formed as to when they think we are competitive and ready to go. Uh, and then we actually have to go to the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland, and ask them whether they would invite us to apply. We need their approval up front. Beer says a National Cancer Institute application should be completed within one to three years. In the late 2000s, UAMS Cancer Institute underwent an ambitious 300,000-square-foot, 12-story expansion, including construction of a 12-story atrium, spacious waiting rooms, and state-of-the-art clinical and research labs, which opened, not fully finished, in 2010. Beer says a portion of state medical marijuana tax revenue is going towards completing construction. One of the first decisions when I came was was I willing to, to raise the money and use the money to build out the final three floors of the Winthrop P. Rockefeller Cancer Institute? So when it was built, like a lot of projects, they were able to shell it out, but they couldn't finish it. And the third, sixth, and seventh floor were not finished. That was a slam dunk and an easy one. We, we, we built a brand new breast imaging center on the third floor. It's absolutely state-of-the-art. It's gorgeous. And women love it because they come in, it's one-stop shopping, MRI, you know, mammo, MRI, biopsy, all done. They get their answer in 24 hours. Sixth floor is a brand new infusion center, uh, state-of-the-art. Patients have a serious diagnosis. This is an inspirational place to receive their treatment in chemotherapy. And then the seventh floor is um, multidisciplinary clinics and offices for, for doctors to see patients. That was an $18 million effort. Um, we balanced it between philanthropic dollars and some of the state money uh, because we just thought it was absolutely so critical to make sure that our patients, when they come here, get state-of-the-art care. And a new medical consortium-owned oncology and radiation center is also being constructed in this case, primarily funded by bonds. And in the end, it will be an absolute state-of-the-art radiation oncology building housing a proton beam, which will be the only proton beam therapy unit in Arkansas. So up until now, our patients, including the children, have to travel outside of Arkansas to get treated. I mean, just in my view, outrageous. So we should solve, we, we will solve that problem. Having a National Cancer Institute-designated cancer center in Arkansas promises to bring $72 million annually to Arkansas's economy and will create nearly 1,600 new jobs within five years, according to NCI. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. State cybersecurity officials are updating lawmakers on their efforts to secure sensitive government data. Members of the Arkansas Legislature's Joint Committee on Advanced Communications and Information Technology met on Monday. Trent Townsend, CEO of the IT company Next Step Innovation, said lawmakers and state employees should undergo a simulated attempt at phishing, where hackers pose as reputable companies in an effort to trick users into divulging personal information. Phishing campaigns to help train the users, training, training in general, uh, but that active testing them, getting them to try to click on something and, and then training them after the fact of what they should do to help 
raise their awareness, make them think twice. Townsend says state agencies should also undergo so-called penetration testing in which cybersecurity experts look for potentially damaging weaknesses in the existing system. Beyond that, um, some of the things that we would recommend um, being investigated or required or encouraged uh, is monitoring, whether it be a security operations center or local staff. Once you find out what's wrong, you fix it. If you then have no insight into what happens after that, then you're going to find yourself back in the same situation. You're never going to be perfect. There's way too many things that can go wrong. Lawmakers also heard from Jonathan Askins, director of the State Division of Information Services, who said executive branch agencies are about halfway done transferring all existing IT systems to a new centralized data center. Arkansas PBS will air the three-part documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust, Sunday, September 18th through Tuesday, September 20th at 7 p.m. each night. The latest film from Ken Burns, Lynn Novick, and Sarah Bobstein explores America's response to one of the greatest humanitarian crises in history. MyARPBS.org slash Holocaust for more. You are listening to your public radio station, which is powered by listener support. Your gift during our fall fundraising month makes everything you hear on 91.3 possible. Make your gift early before the on-air portion of our fundraiser begins at the end of this month. Because of generous KUAF listeners, we've raised more than $23,000 so far. Help us get closer to our goal and support the radio you rely on. You can make your gift online in just minutes right now at supportkuaf.com. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Timothy Dennis. I'm Matthew Moore. Midterms are coming up, Matthew, which means there's a new season of Natural Election, right? That's right. Yes. So we started with a brand new episode today talking about ballot measures. That's kind of been one of the main focuses that we're going to work on. Um, It's something everyone's going to see on their ballots this year. So it seemed like something um, that definitely deserve being talked a lot about. Right. And you're devoting several episodes to the different ballot measures we're facing this year. Yes. So uh, so we're going to be talking, obviously, about recreational marijuana, where it stands, um, what is happening and, and why it's been such a contentious ballot measure in the first place. Um, and then some of the lesser known and lesser understood ones, too. I think that's really an important element of better understanding what you're voting for and what your vote really means. So we're about to hear an excerpt from this new episode of Natural Election. Set us up a little bit. Yes. So we're talking about issue two, which is a ballot measure about future ballot measures. And we really wanted to start the season off with this one because it's kind of the most esoteric of the four potential measures. And so really kind of setting the table of what does it even mean to get a ballot measure on the ballot, how much work has to go into that, and what could potentially change from that as well. On the ballot this year, you'll see four different measures that could potentially become amendments to the Constitution. Well, actually, maybe only three of them, but we'll get into that in a bit. Let's start by talking about the state motto of Arkansas, Regnet Populus, which is Latin for the people rule. One way we've seen this motto play out time and time again is with amendments to the state constitution, 102 of them as of right now. By comparison, Oklahoma's constitution has been amended 29 times. Tennessee, just seven. Well, I think overall... We've amended our Constitution in far too much of a haphazard fashion. That's State Representative David Ray of Monmouth and the sponsor of a potential amendment to the Arkansas Constitution, which will be issue two on the ballot this November. And what it would do is it would increase the threshold for passage of future constitutional amendments and for ballot measures from a bare majority, which is 50 percent plus one, up to 60%. A ballot measure about future ballot measures. Politics is sexy, y'all. Like Representative Ray said, the current threshold for a measure that is on the ballot to become an amendment to the Constitution is just 50% plus one. For simplicity's sake, let's say there's a thousand voters. 500 vote yes, 500 vote no. The measure doesn't pass. The vote needs to be 501 
to 499 to officially become an amendment currently in Arkansas. Now, on the surface, this may not sound like that big of a deal, right? But what that doesn't necessarily take into consideration is the work it takes to get onto the ballot itself. Now, there's two ways this happens. One is what is called a legislatively referred constitutional amendment. A majority vote is required in both chambers of the Arkansas State Legislature, the House and the Senate, to refer a measure to the ballot. Pretty straightforward. The other way is called a citizen-initiated constitutional amendment. A little less straightforward. They have to collect a specific amount of signatures from a specific amount of counties. We'll have a link on our website that gives a more granular breakdown if you're interested. Suffice it to say, it's much harder threshold to pass than legislators have to pass. Just ask a man who's worked on a whole host of ballot measures over the last three decades. Trying to get casinos uh, legalized in Arkansas, primarily in Crittenden County, because that's when Tunica was up and going. David Couch is an attorney in Arkansas with lots of experience on the citizen-initiated ballot measures. I led the medical marijuana initiative that passed in 2000 and, God, I guess it's 16 now. Come back to 2018, was involved in the measure that actually authorized the four additional casinos in Arkansas. My client are the um, Cherokee. And then uh, in 2018, we raised the minimum wage again. 2020, we had two measures that, that we were trying to get on the ballot. One, uh, independent redistricting commissioning to deal with gerrymandering. And the second one was top four primary rank choice voting. We collected enough signatures to get both of those amendments on the ballot. And uh, the Supreme Court took them off the ballot, didn't let people vote on them. Since the year 2000, there have been 25 amendments to the Arkansas Constitution. One of those was a citizen-initiated amendment in 2004 that banned same-sex marriage in the state that was later overturned. Three other citizen measures have passed in the last 20 years. The establishment of the state lottery in 2008, medical marijuana in 2016, and the authorization of four casinos in 2018. The other 21 amendments were all brought forward by the legislature. Our state constitution is Arkansas's charter document. Representative David Ray again. And it should only be amended when there's genuine consensus among the voters. That's why I offered issue two is because it provides what I believe is a much needed guardrail. Under our current system, it's very easy for big money, out-of-state special interests to hijack our rules for the ballot initiative system or our state constitutional amendment system and really sort of pull the wool over the voters' eyes and run deceptive ads and effectively buy a constitutional amendment. That is just such a ridiculous, another ridiculous argument and sort of the standard talking point. That is Bonnie Miller, the president of the League of Women Voters of Arkansas, as well as the campaign manager for Protect Our Constitution, a group opposed to issue two. I, I've worked on these grassroots campaigns that are led by Arkansans. These are policies that we want. So again, this idea that we can't think for ourselves or make educated, informed decisions is wildly insulting and shows, like I said, just very little faith in us. And it's just, it's their standard talking point, you know, dark money, out-of-state money. As we've pointed out, it's really tough to get a citizen-initiated constitutional amendment on the ballot already. Just seven have even made it onto the ballot in the last 20 years. The legislature, by comparison, has the authority to refer up to three amendments on the ballot every two years. Do you have any concrete examples of, of some of the ballot measures that you're kind of thinking of when you're talking about pulling the wool over voters' eyes or, or being a little misleading? Well, in the, just in the last election, there were several unsuccessful attempts to amend the Constitution, whether it was so-called independent redistricting or whether it was ranked choice voting or whether it was jungle primaries. There were several attempts um, to, in my opinion, mislead the voters. Let's break down those three that Representative Ray mentions here. 
In 2020, there was a citizen-initiated constitutional amendment proposed to offer a citizens redistricting commission. The ballot measure ended up not being allowed on the ballot due to a requirement that sponsors certify that canvassers pass background checks. The citizen-initiated amendment for ranked choice voting failed to make it on the ballot for the same reason. A part of that was the jungle primaries that Representative Ray talks about. So to say that these examples misled voters would be a bit misleading itself, since voters didn't actually vote on them. Let's not forget, 60% is a pretty significant threshold for a vote of any nature. At the current threshold of 50% plus one, 24 amendments have passed, not counting the overturned same-sex marriage ban. But with the 60% threshold, that would be cut to just 13. That would exclude the half-cent sales tax for roads and infrastructure that passed in 2012, which technically means we wouldn't have a continuation of that sales tax in 2020, which wouldn't have passed by the 60% marker anyway. Here's another one. An amendment from 2014 that now requires legislative review and approval of all changes to state agencies' administrative rules. That sounds pretty reasonable, right? That the legislature has the ability to give checks and balances to state agencies. This one had massive bipartisan support in the House and the Senate. But it only passed by 59.06% on the ballot. Wouldn't have made it. And of course, medical marijuana. This amendment has provided more than $32 million in tax revenue to Arkansas for the 2022 fiscal year alone. Much of that tax revenue is going to the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences National Cancer Designation Trust Fund. 53%. Wouldn't have made it. And of course, it's important to remember that this constitutional amendment on the ballot that would require a 60% threshold for future amendments on the ballot just needs 50% plus one votes to pass. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. And Matthew Moore is joining me in the Herald and Blanche Kalk News Studio. Matthew, eight years ago, 2014, Mm -hmm. I did a series on the ballot issues that were facing voters then. And comparing some of those issues to today, it's kind of funny seeing how things don't change because we're dealing with direct democracy and an issue regarding that this year but we were also dealing with that eight years ago yeah it's it's been very fascinating and it was some of the things that david couch who i spoke to for the podcast pointed out to me that for as long as direct democracy has been on the ballot the legislature has been working in sometimes more deceptive ways to make it harder for citizens to get a ballot on the uh, on, uh, measure on the ballot and make it into the Constitution. And they've, you know, we saw this just in 2020. There was mm-hmm. uh, a ballot measure that came up for a vote. So you're right. Some things never change, unfortunately. And some of the people never change either, because I spoke with David Couch several times in that series eight years ago. Right. And, you know, as as he points out, he's been doing this since the 90s. Like, he's not a stranger to this, uh, to this work. And, you know, I would imagine he's going to keep doing this work for as long as he can, because, you know, as... As Bonnie and David both point out, it's really important for us to live into that motto of Arkansas, regnant populace, the people rule. So, Okay, so what's next for natural election? Yes, so we are actually going to be hanging out uh, on Sunday in downtown Springdale starting at 2 p.m. for the model for the model citizen rally and register event in partnership with Interform, our friends there in Springdale. Uh, Reporter Daniel Carruth and I will be hanging out with a tape recorder, uh, just trying to catch some people's stories to hear why is voting matter to you? Why is it important to you? Maybe you're registering for the first time ever. Why did you decide to do that? So we're excited to gather some stories from people and to really see democracy hard at work in downtown Springdale. And we're also going to be in two weeks. We're going to be at the Prior Center. We're partnering with them um, to record a live episode of the podcast and try to answer the question, does my vote matter? Well, I look forward to hearing what you capture this Sunday and at the Prior Center. Excellent reporting, Matthew. Thank you so much. Thanks. On the next Points of Departure... What does it mean to actually change the world? 
So I was thinking critically about that and our work as students with refugees, you know, we aim to advocate for refugees and looking at the life Terra model. I was like, well, it'd be great if we can really equip students to feel like, you know, they can advocate for pro-refugee policy on their own, policies in our government that would actually result in sustainable change through that kind of process of thinking, we started our first ever advocacy training program, which is actually happening right now. We'll hear from students about their experience with Arkansas Global Changemakers, on the role of business in making meaningful social change, how young people can take action on issues in their community, and how international perspectives can help address local problems. That's Points of Departure, available now for free on KUAF.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. The Arkansas Senate Ethics Committee has weighed in on a recent ethics complaint by Arkansas State Senator Alan Clark against State Senator Stephanie Flowers. The committee ruled Clark's complaint was frivolous and that he should be suspended from the Senate for the remainder of this year and that he should lose his seniority in the Senate next year. As part of their weekly conversation, Roby Brock from Talk Business and Politics asked political columnist John Brummett for his take on the committee's ruling. I think uh, the Senate, I think, first take, this is a bipartisan committee, Republican chairman, Republican members, Democratic members. The committee's, uh, what the committee has put out so far indicates that Republicans made the key motions. One, to say that uh, Stephanie Flowers did nothing wrong, that her getting automatic direct deposits of per diem while she zoomed in was a clerical error that was corrected, uh, that she called the attention of the Senate to, and and that she and that she paid back. I, I think Missy Irvin maybe made that uh, Republican made that motion. A Democrat seconded it, and then the second part, which which was this is a. A, a, a frivolous, retaliatory, inappropriate, uh, weaponizing, trivializing abuse of the ethics process. Uh, that was made by a Republican, I believe, uh, Wallace, and seconded by a Democrat, Ingram. So I'd like to praise Alan Clark for uh, uh, for promoting bipartisanship in the Arkansas legislature. You don't see it that much. That What I make of it is that the Senate is deeply worried about this ethics escapade, uh, this, this, this ethics debacle that seems to be happening. And they, they think that uh, they let Trent Garner trivialize it early, the new process they set up by filing a complaint against Jim Hendren that was, that was not valid. And now the very idea that Clark, who would do a wrong thing, who would try to get by his, his, his admission, a, a, a colleague to sign him into a meeting he was not going to go to so that he could collect per diem. For him to then, rather than simply take that and accept that and say, my bad, not going to do it anymore, he's talked openly about uh, retaliation. He's talked openly openly about, you know, suggesting the whole Senate, uh, whole Senate is, uh, is ethically corrupt and... Stephanie Flowers didn't do anything wrong, <clears throat> and <clears throat> they just decided we've got to do something. We've got to arrest this situation if we can in terms of, of, of this political weaponizing of it or this political game playing with it. So, that's I mean, I don't know that it means anything that he's suspended as a senator. I don't even know what that means for the rest of the year. There's not much to do, but he's not going to get per diem. He's not going to... If he wanted to bring an eth- a new ethics retaliation or a new complaint between now and the end of the year, I don't think he's a senator for purposes of doing that. But more importantly, uh, he'll go into the organizational meeting for the for the next uh, uh, legislative session beginning in January uh, with uh, if this is if the Senate approves this this week as the number thirty five in seniority. The, the, the Ethics Commission recommended that he be 35th, coming behind everybody who's going to be elected newly in November. Uh, and that means he doesn't get, th- this sounds, okay. He can't be chairman of judiciary. He doesn't get the committee assignments necessarily that he wants. He doesn't sit in the same place if, if somebody else wants that seat. He doesn't get the nicer office if somebody else had ever gets it. Uh, he doesn't get the parking place he wants. It's those things are not a big deal, but but it, it's it's a it's a shaming or or if not a shaming, 
it's a it's a serious uh, uh, calling down or calling him out for what the Senate disapproves of. And I was stunned at the magnitude of the recommended punishments. I really didn't see what they were going to do to him after they'd already ended his per diem and, and, and taken away his chairmanship for the end of the year. But they got serious. And I understand the Ethics Committee was uh, of one mind and and, and, and strong-willed on this matter. And uh, so there we are. I, think uh, I do think, I, I want to just say this, I think there is a problem with per diem in the state legislature, in the state Senate. I think that, it, that the culture is befouled with this preponderance, this abundance, of, particularly of interim meetings that aren't necessary that members of committees show up to and sign in and get what amounts to a tax-free salary supplement minus the gasoline it took them to get there. I don't. I think there's something there's something cookie jarish about this per diem. I don't like the way it's done, but it, that's a matter of policy set by the Efficiency Committee and Rules Committee or whoever else runs the place, and it's not a matter of individual ethics. So they need to work on the policy, If I think, in some respects. And we have had some legislators before not take their per diem. Um, I know of a couple, but I, I don't want to name them until I, until I know all those who don't. But there are some who don't. And right now, they are very pleased that they haven't. Uh, that uh, makes their life a lot simpler. Let's talk another topic here. A video emerges uh, over the weekend from uh, former President Donald Trump claiming that the election in Arkansas could be stolen from Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, possibly. It's more a setup for him to talk about the 2020 election uh, being stolen from him under his, uh, uh, I guess, where, where he feels about that. Are you worried that the election is going to get stolen in Arkansas for Sarah Huckabee Sanders over Chris Jones? No, no, I'm not. I'm worried that she's going to win it fair and square. That worries the heck out of me. Uh, and and I look, I didn't see this thing from what what is it? Bedminster is that one of his places? He was had some kind of event over the weekend. Help me. Was uh, I just looked at it briefly? Was he talking initially to to Mike Huckabee? Was he there? Is Mike Huckabee and Janet Huckabee appeared to be there, but yes, it was a room yes. full of supporters, yes. So he's, so here's the deal. Trump's talking to this room full of people on a Saturday night, I guess, or whenever it was. Uh, and, and, and there's Mike Huckabee and Janet, and he goes off on a riff about their wonderful daughter and how she really gave it right back to those evil liberals in the press. And uh, she's a great person and just the top of the line. And she's going to be the governor of Arkansas and she's going to be great. And then it occurs to him that he ought to say, uh, we should probably say that uh, she has an opponent and, and she's not elected yet and she does have an opponent. And then he goes off on this silly, typically silly uh, uh, riff about how, and there's always a chance that they'll do her the way they did me. That they'll that they'll find a million dollars about three, a million votes about three or four o'clock in the morning. They'll just come in all of a sudden and say that she lost. He doesn't. He didn't mean that. He, he's not a serious person. Uh, he 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 rambles and 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 he also will tend to make everything about him. So it occurred to him maybe that he needed to say she does have an opponent, which gave him an excuse to slander Arkansas by saying Arkansas might do what he alleges falsely was done to him in the national vote. It's all about him. It's never serious. It's not a big deal. He didn't mean it. Uh, and this, there's not going to be. And, and the Arkansas legislature has done what it can to uh, make voting harder for uh, poor people. Uh, so so it's, it's just silliness, utter utter silliness. I was reminded of this historical context when, when, when Trump said those things and Huckabee, Mike Huckabee was in attendance. Do you remember when Huckabee was opposed? I think the time he was opposed by Jimmy Lee Fisher and he went on a national show uh, late in the election and said it looked good for him down there, except it's a banana republic right now. While on Sunday down in Pine Bluff, they opened up the uh, uh, early voting after church, and they ran buses out of the churches. Remember that? And he called, said Arkansas was a banana republic. 
So uh, it was largely uh, 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 black churches, and that's a whole different issue I won't get into. It just reminded me that this whole idea that if we, if we make it easy for these poor people to vote, uh, that's, that's bad. That's a banana republic. That's stealing election. Huckabee was a little Trumpy before Trump, which might explain why they're so close together, so mutually admiring. Well, more Just a little historical note I wanted to make. All right. Duly noted. More on point. Do you think that Donald Trump uh, could be hurting Sarah Huckabee Sanders? Um, she's tied to him closely, obviously. That's what rode her to an easy Republican nomination. Could it be working against her with independent voters in enough of a way to make this race closer than it should be? Here's how I see this, and this is purely my instinct, uh, pending some poll numbers, which uh, you need, you and your fine organization need to give us pretty soon. Uh, but I think that uh, that, uh, that that Trump hurts Republicans severely in a national context right now because the independent swing voters who who tended to side with him more than with the Democrats are sick of him and are afraid of him and are tired of dealing with his uh, his nonsense. And I think that's, on a national scale, that is a big issue. The, the question is, is Arkansas anything like the nation in that regard? We have independents, but they are overwhelmingly conservative. They've over, been overwhelmingly Trumpers. Is uh, I do not at this point think that, that Arkansas independent, conservative independents who, who are, are switching away from Sarah Sanders or from Republicans at all. I, I don't think that's happening here because I think those voters, white, rural, conservative, independent voters, are more disdainful of liberal Democrats than they are of anything Trump could say. That's how I see it right now in Arkansas, differently from the way it is in other, uh, in other uh, voting cultures in other states. But we can look at that empirically, and we'll, somebody will be doing polls soon enough, and we will uh, be able to look at that. That was John Brummett, political columnist with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and Roby Brock from our content partner, Talk Business and Politics. You can find more from their conversation at talkbusiness.net. This month's KUAF Lunch Hour, featuring area musicians and area food, will highlight Southeast Arkansas's artists Avian Aaliyah and local Caribbean Jamaican food truck Island Vibes. Avian will perform songs from her first project, Aviation, and has been writing music since the age of 12. She produced her first studio record in 2018 as a college freshman at the U of A from inside a dorm room. Island Vibes on Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard in Fayetteville features authentic island fare like jerk chicken, curry goat, and oxtail. Avian Aaliyah with the music, Island Vibes with the food, the KUAF Lunch Hour, September 16th, with doors open at noon. Music begins at 1220. For more, go to KUAF.com slash the lunch hour. For years, Nina Totenberg has delivered concise reports on legal matters. Her first book, which is out today, is rooted in the legal world, but not set exclusively in it. Dinners with Ruth, a memoir on the power of friendships, is about a lifelong friendship with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But it's also about Totenberg's life and career and the other friends and mentors that have guided her. Last week, she spoke with Ozarks at Large's Kyle Kellams about the book. She says her first encounter with Justice Ginsburg was before she was with NPR and years before the Supreme Court for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yes, I was brand new covering the Supreme Court. I was reading a brief that she had written. It turned out it was her, her first Supreme Court brief. And it was the, in the case that ultimately decided that women are entitled to equal protection of the law under the 14th Amendment. And I, But I didn't understand a lot of what she was saying in the brief, so I called her up. And we had an hour-long conversation, mainly a lecture from her, with me asking questions. And after that, I started calling her regularly in sex discrimination and race discrimination cases. And she was always willing to talk to me. And we became friends over an extended period of time, nearly 50 years. I'm curious, do you remember the first conversation that took place that wasn't about a legal case? 
Well, I don't know that it was the first conversation, but we first met in person at a legal conference that was so boring that we left to go shopping. And (laughs) something Ruth normally would not have done. I mean, she liked to shop, but not she wouldn't bail out on a on a legal conference so it must have been really boring and i don't remember the shopping i remember the conversation in the in the cab and before we went in the on the in the cab etc and it was about her desire to be a trial judge at that point she was in her uh, 30s and wanted to be a trial judge and was having no luck at all uh, her nose was sort of up against the window pane, in much the way mine was for a lot of jobs that I applied for, and I was told flatly, "We don't hire women, or we already have our woman." And that's what was so extraordinary about my friends at NPR. They were mainly women, and the reason they were mainly women was that the network was just starting. And the money they paid as salaries was so small that no man would take the job. But we women became an old girls network, all of us. And we be- helped each other through our lives. And that's sort of what this book is about, as well as my friendship with Ruth. And she was part of the old girls network in a different way. Did you ever have a conversation with her? Because, you know, she became a role model to so many women and men and became, you know, a meme. And you would see on backpacks and computers, you know, her image (laughs) on young people. Did you ever talk about her becoming that icon? Oh, yes, we talked about it. And and she talked about it when we would do interviews. But, you know, she basically didn't become an icon until she was in her 80s. And she couldn't quite get over that. And it's not something that's easy to explain. Um, Erin uh, Carmone, who wrote the book, The Notorious RBG, that was partly responsible for her becoming an icon, um, was her theory is that that young younger people were looking for raw, genuine heroes, and that she clearly was the real deal. I'm not sure it's that simple. I think she was a lot of things combined into one. She had this very intentional persona. She was very deliberate most of the time. She knew what she believed and she stood up for it, even if it cost her on occasion. Um, She refused to join a club once uh, because the club had blackballed me, for example. I think she would have enjoyed belonging to that club. But this is the kind of thing I talk about in the book. She was always there when you needed her as her, as a friend. And she was and wasn't the person you saw in public. Um, she, she was a slow and deliberate talker as she was on the bench. Um, but she loved to gossip, not about her colleagues on the court, but about lower court judges, for example, or even movie stars, if she found something out. It was, she was a, and even though she was very shy, she loved, loved, loved to laugh. And she could also be quite funny. I'm always curious about deadlines. How did you know when you were done with the memoir? I kind of, I think I it could have had another edit, frankly, but um, when I agreed to do this book, uh, uh, they said I wouldn't have a deadline, <laughs> and then of course they asked me if I could finish by February <laughs> with a first draft last this past February, which meant a, like a, a basically a seven month turnaround, seven or eight month turnaround, and so I made it. Thank God I made it uh, because. Justice Breyer retired, and then we had confirmation hearings, and I would not have been able to do that at all. I would not have been able to do work on the book. And then I did at least three or four more edits. Um, it's it, it it's just it's it's almost it's incredibly difficult to do uh, as a day job when you have a day job. And I didn't. I made it clear I didn't want to take time off from my day job. And I think it says it all uh, in the dedication. It says, to my husband, David, who put up with all the late nights of writing this book and then apologized for talking me into it. 
The name of the book is Dinners with Ruth, a memoir on the power of friendships. Nina Totenberg, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Nina Totenberg's book, Dinners with Ruth, a memoir on the power of friendships, is available today, September 13th. She spoke with Ozarks at Large's Kyle Kellams last week. Today is the 13th day of September, and Kendrick Fincher Hydration for Life is leaning into that lucky number 13. The foundation, dedicated to promoting hydration and prevention of heat illnesses, is adding a 13K ride for cyclists and a 13K walk or run to its annual race to hydrate in October at Pinnacle Hills Promenade in Rogers. People who register by September 15th are guaranteed a 2022 shirt. There are also 5K events and other scheduled activities. You can register and learn about start times for all the races at KendrickFincher.org. Lake Sequoia Park, a Fayetteville-owned and operated city park, will no longer charge user fees to the public. This summer, the Fayetteville Parks and Recreation Advisory Board voted to recommend the city waive both daily and annual boating and fishing permit fees. Last week, Fayetteville City Council voted unanimously to approve an ordinance to amend recreational activities at Lake Sequoia to remove all required fees. Allison Jumper, Fayetteville Director of Parks, Natural Resources, and Cultural Affairs, says she thinks the council viewed the change as positive. Um, there were a couple of questions about uh how the budget might be affected, and also how the Arkansas Game and Fish might come into play as part of this. After contract, after contract concession and marina operator Mike Carver retired, the city has asked users to voluntarily deposit cash permit payments into a locked metal box posted in the marina parking lot. In recent years, the park generated as much as $16,000 in annual revenue from the sale of up to 1800 fishing and boating permits, as well as sport field rental fees. Jumper says planners and city council agreed to not hire a new marina operator, saving the city more than $30,000 annually, which will make up for waived fees. She says as a free-use lake, state game and fish agents can establish public fishing events. Um, The Arkansas Game and Fish has a um, family and community fishing program, and we are um, we're currently working with them to see if we can get some participating um, fishing areas in Fayetteville. And um, by not having uh, fishing fees, this could open up opportunity for Lake Sequoia. Not saying that it will, but um, it does give us, um, I think, more room to try to partner with Game and Fish out there. The 1,400-acre Lake Sequoia Park is located seven miles southeast of Fayetteville's downtown. Jumper says removing permit fees will provide more equitable access to the park. But I do feel like that in areas where we have opportunities to remove barriers from the public to enjoy our natural resources and participate in programming that that is generally perceived as positive. Under the amended ordinance, the public will have free access to the park starting in early October. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore, and I'm joined in the Harold and Blanche Calk News Studio with Timothy Dennis and our underwriting director, Ryan Versi. What's up, Ryan? Nothing much. How's it going? We, good. We are good. You are here to give our listeners some free stuff. Oh, yeah. absolutely love giving our listeners free stuff. Um, you guys support us, and hey, we're giving back. That's right. So, Timothy, uh, tell us a little bit about Herb Albert. So, I, Herb I, Albert is a fantastic trumpeter who I was first introduced to in junior high when I was an aspiring trumpeter myself. Ooh. And he's been doing it for 60 plus years. That's who we're giving away tickets for, right? That's yes. correct. All right. So, without further ado, Ryan, tell us who is going to win tickets to go see Herb Albert. This is at the Walton Arts Center. Mm-hmm. That is correct. Walton Arts Center, the winner. Of the tickets for Herb Alpert is Mr. Aaron Berg. Aaron Berg. Thank yes. Thank you. Awesome. Well, Aaron. Of the, many, of the many people who entered, Aaron Berg is the winner. Go enjoy yourself. Excellent. And I'm guessing we will be in touch with Aaron, getting him information and his tickets and everything. Correct. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we will have another giveaway later this week, correct? Absolutely. Giving away tickets for Format Fest. Yes, that's going to be right. a lot of fun. And people can still enter for that at our website. That's correct. KUF.com. All right. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for stopping by. Thanks for having me, of course. I always love to walk down the hall and join you guys. So, so we love you <laughs> having you down on this end of the hallway. It's great. Absolutely. 
This is 91.3 FM KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Springdale, and St. Paul. 91.3 KUAF is a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. Contributors to today's show included Jacqueline Froelich and Kyle Kellums. Our conversations between Arkansas Democrat Gazette political columnist John Brummett and Roby Brock come to us through our partnership with Talk Business and Politics. You can find more political and business news from around the state at talkbusiness.net. Additional content today came from the hardworking news team at KUAR, public radio for Little Rock and Central Arkansas. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah and is written and performed by Daryl Sean. KUAF's operations manager is Pete Hartman. Thanks to KUAF's underwriting director, Ryan Versi, for stopping by today. Don't forget, we'll have another giveaway later this week for tickets to Format Festival later this month in Bentonville. You can find out more about that at our website, KUAF.com. We will end today's show with music from the band Mildenhall. They'll perform Thursday night with the bands Olympics, Modeling, and Bootleg Royale at George's Majestic Lounge in Fayetteville. Doors are at 7 p.m., music at 8, and tickets are $12 in advance. You can find more at georgesmajesticlounge.com. Here's Mildenhall performing in our Furman Garner Performance Studio at KUAF earlier this year. I'm Timothy Dennis. I'm Matthew Moore. Thank you so much for spending part of your Tuesday with us. You can also listen to us on your schedule at Ozarks at large.com or wherever you get your podcasts we'll be back with you tomorrow at noon at 7 p.m on 91.3 fm until then be well seven octillion atoms in your shoes I bet I could fill them But then if I disagree In a million galaxies There is no other like you In all of this life Around me Sing distance in a beauty I'm not Just a quiet observer to the sky above me A noble fatuity reminds me of Texas sun in the summer